Have the main major climate activist groups have been taken over by the philanthropic billionaires to the detriment of the environment? Why are prominent climate change activists actually helping the big oil sector make more money off of harvesting fossil fuels? Is Bill Gates helping farmers in the global south the same way Christopher Columbus helped indigenous people in the Americas? Does Gates plan to do the exact same control of natural seeds and therefore food in the 2020s that he had with software in the 80s? This week on the Global Research News Hour, as Earth Day arrives on Saturday, April 22nd, we mark the occasion with a special look at how the environment and our lives may be affected by maneuvers of the billionaire elites orchestrated in the name of saving the planet. In our first half hour, Australian activist Michael Swift explains the carbon capture gimmick used by the big energy companies to sucker the big-named climate activists while helping their coffers. Then in our second half hour, Vandana Shiva, Indian environmentalist and food advocate, reflects on her writings of what she calls the philanthropists and the threat of something far worse than the green revolution coming to developing and developed nations alike. On this week's program, environmental activism as a capitalist Trojan horse and the Bill Gates factor. Bringing you the analysis beyond the media headlines, the Global Research News Hour is on the air. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour for the week of April 21st, 2023. The program is funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg. I'm your host, Michael Welch. The show seeks to provide listeners with access to analysis of some of the major issues shaping our world today from thinkers, researchers, and unique political personalities rarely addressed by major media. Our shows are features on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. We acknowledge that this broadcast was produced on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Métis Nation and the heart of the Métis Nation homeland. The land and waters were seized with disrespect to the people who lived on the land first and ended up suffering the horrors of colonialism and genocide. We endeavor to right these wrongs through reparations and reconciliation. It's time now for News Notes, a sampling of articles from the Global Research News site. Listeners should know that some of the articles may run against common messaging about sensitive subjects and are not all endorsed by this radio station. Now, the man whom Joe Biden embraced in 2009 and called the, quote, George Washington of Kosovo, unquote, is facing a special court as a war criminal. On Monday, the trial of Hashim Thatchi, the co-founder and spokesman of the Kosovo Liberation Army, or KLA, and later Kosovo's foreign minister, head of government and president, began in The Hague. The 70-page indictment accuses Thatchi and three other high-ranking KLA members, Kadri Vezeli, Brexep Selimi, and Jakub Krasniki, of being responsible for more than a 100 murders 
and numerous other war crimes in 1998 and 1999. All four are accused of having personally participated in threatening or abusing prisoners. The prosecution was handed over 56,000 documents to Thatchy's defense lawyers that prove these accusations. That comes from the article, Kosovo Liberation Army Leader Hashim Thatchy on Trial for War Crimes, by Peter Schwarz and Professor Michel Chosodovsky, posted April 19th, originally published on World Socialist website. On a calm Wednesday morning, Alam Abdul Haq was cleaning his small shop in the Mrej Street in Nablus, in the occupied West Bank, when he found himself in the middle of a violent Israeli undercover raid. It took him a few moments before he realized that a group of telecommunication workers that had arrived in his neighborhood moments earlier was, in fact, an Israeli forces unit preparing to detain Palestinian fighter Mohammed Hamdan. The raid on the 22nd of March came as part of a series of similar Israeli military raids into various West Bank towns and neighborhoods that aimed to detain or assassinate wanted Palestinian resistance fighters. Many of these raids resulted in the killing of several Palestinians in what Palestinian officials have described as a series of quote-unquote massacres. In a trembling voice, Abdul Haq recalled the events of that morning. That comes from the article, Undercover in Broad Daylight, Israeli Military Raids in West Bank Cities, by Ola Marshud, posted April 19th, originally published on Middle East Eye. This, quote, integrated deterrence, unquote, is a sort of pooling of the resources of the countries of the Americas to fight a supposedly common enemy. Washington calls for, quote, unity, unquote, to confront the enemy it has unilaterally defined as the enemy, which is not necessarily the same as Latin America and the Caribbean, which should rather opt for neutrality and the search for peace. The head of the Southern Command said it very precisely in Ecuador when she stated that, quote, China's advance is a national security problem, unquote. She added that the United States and Latin America and the Caribbean should, quote, work together as a team playing our respective positions in a harmonious and highly effective way to resolve this problem, unquote. As has been seen, the instruments are varied, the actions manifest different dimensions and characteristics, but all aim to keep the region subject to Washington's strategic control. That comes from the article, NATO's Growing Military Presence in Latin America and the Caribbean by Sergio Rodriguez Gelfeldenstein, posted April 19th, originally published on Internationalist 360. Declassified documents from 1998, when the UK and US bombed Saddam Hussein's Iraq, show Tony Blair was consistently informed military action was unlawful without UN authorization, but he told Parliament Britain had, quote, the proper legal authority, unquote. Tony Blair and his closest advisors were consistently informed by British legal advisors in 1997 and 1998 that attacking Iraq would not be lawful. 
but still went ahead in authorizing four days of bombing in December 1998. The declassified British documents at the National Archives show Blair was already set on taking military action against Saddam Hussein's regime throughout 1998 in the absence of legal arguments to justify it. For the Labour Prime Minister's dismissal of legal objections to his 1998 bombing campaign, known as Operation Desert Fox, was a direct precursor to his stance over the invasion of Iraq five years later in 2003, which was also deemed illegal. That comes from the article, Blair Misled Parliament Over 1998 Iraq Bombing, Files Show, by Mark Curtis, posted April 19th, originally published on Declassified UK. These are just a few of the featured articles appearing last week on the Global Research website. Regular visitors to the site are encouraged to send monetary contributions by fax, mail, or online. Just go to globalresearch.ca and click Donate on the menu bar. In the face of climate change, there is talk that far from resisting the profit makers off fossil fuel production, the ENGO activists are playing right into their hands and have their climate change actions being turned into money-making booms that in fact do not do anything as dramatic as what the activists are accustomed to describing. What I'm talking about is the idea of carbon capture and sequestration and similar initiatives hiding in the shadow of so-called clean energy. Michael Swift has studied this issue for many years now. He's an Australian activist and a member of the Wrong Kind of Green Critical Thinking Collective. We reached him in Brisbane, Queensland to share his thoughts on the subject. Welcome to the Global Research News Hour, Michael. G'day. Thanks for having me. Now, you wrote an article in February, uh, SD, S, SDG 13 and the carbon capture boom. What exactly do you mean by carbon capture and how had CO2 become, as was described by Chief Technology Officer of Saudi Aramco, Ahmad Al-Kawater, a valuable foodstock, feedstock? Uh, uh, CO2 is what anthropogenic CO2 captured from uh, fossil fuels or biofuels is uh, useful for a process called enhanced oil recovery. And um, uh, US oil companies have been uh, tapping a geological formation called a CO2 dome um, for decades to supply CO2 for enhanced oil recovery, which extracts oil that um, in a depressurized well would be inaccessible. So it um, is said to, enhanced oil recovery is said to be capable of quadrupling U.S. proven reserves. So that would also apply to Canada. And in Canada, you have the world's preeminent example of carbon capture and storage transported with CO2 to transported to an enhanced oil recovery. So uh, just north of Edmonton, you have the um, Northwest Refining Tar Sands facility, uh, $25 billion facility, and a, uh, I think it's a 150-mile Alberta carbon trunk line taking CO2 to the um, Clive um, Enhanced Oil Recovery Field. 
um, south of Edmonton. This is rarely talked about, almost never talked about by any of the former members of the LEAP or um, any uh, prominent activists, especially, and I would make a point of pointing to uh, Sapora Berman, um, the uh, leader of the um, Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation Treaty Organisation. Um, yeah, so that that's in a nutshell why... Um, why I'm concerned about carbon capture and storage and uh, how it relates to Canada and enhanced oil recovery. CO2 enhanced oil recovery, that, that's essentially like fracking, like, like a step up or a step further, right? It's using it to get oil that uh, you couldn't otherwise get? Yes, exactly. It's like a giant frack in a lot of ways because it uses a lot of water. There's a process called water alternating gas miscible flooding. So basically they pump a whole lot of CO2 in liquefied form down into the sponge-like um, rock layers in the uh, oil deposit or the played out oil deposit and that swells up the oil and they follow that with uh, water and then they do a pulsing alternating water and gas and the water is used to flood out the um, plumped up oil and then separators are used to separate the oil out and the water is reused and pumped back down again. But there's massive water allocations necessary for this process. So, yeah, it's, um, it's very intensive and the general public, just like fracking, have no idea what's about to come. The language... Uh, went into uh, the, the legislation of, of going from 100% renewable energy to uh, clean energy. And, and clean includes non-renewables, uh, CCS products, uh, and um, even nuclear. But, but, but could you take us uh, through the process, maybe a bit of a timeline, if you will. How, how exactly did the stage get set, like what, way back, shaping the direction of what pro progressive climate change policy would look like, but, you know, what it turned out to be. I think you would start, um, if you're going to start a timeline around clean energy, would be about uh, the mid-2000s, um, starting with uh, John Podesta, and the um, design to win plan, which um, is a, a collective plan of a bunch of mostly US-based uh, uh, philanthropies like uh, Hewlett Foundation, the Oak Foundation, and they helped to establish the um, Climate Works Foundation headed up by John Podesta and John Podesta helped or led the process of granting various organizations establishing NGOs for regranting so that small groups looking for a $5,000, $10,000 would be um, brought into the positions of these various billionaire funded collective philanthropies and their plan. And what's, what's significant about the design to win plan is that it creates space for unavoidable fossil fuels, quote, unavoidable fossil fuels. 
So that that leaves a window for concession positions on allowing um, carb <clears throat> carbon capture and storage for biomass and um, that to have biomass with carbon capture and storage, you also have to have the storage established and managed by the people who have the most power to do that, which is big oil, gas and coal. So it, in the end, uh, concession positions that are, that are kept very quiet by the design to win plan uh, NGOs, John Podesta or um, Chris Hone in Europe, who um, who has uh, contributed a lot of funding to Extinction Rebellion. You have to. Oh, how do I explain it? To get biomass with carbon capture and storage, you have to accept fossil fuel carbon capture and storage, and you can't sell the idea of. Uh, renewables boom actually happening while this stuff is happening in the background if you tell the complete story about what the interests of big oil and gas really are. So in the end, that concession position is hiding behind language like clean energy, which the green groups are not at pains to unpack. You know what I mean? There's not a lot of discourse about what this term could be doing rhetorically. But when you look at the language, when you look at what Fadi Birol said to Justin Trudeau last year after G7, and when you look at what I called clean tax credits that uh, Gilbert announced a week ago or two weeks ago, then you see that um, the word clean encompasses nuclear and carbon capture and storage for fossil fuels. And that should be very, very concerning to anybody, any climate campaigner who says that um, there's a renewables boom or who says that we need to get off fossil fuels and leave them in the ground. They need to be attending to this and they are absolutely not doing that. And that's my deep concern, especially for Canada, because it is the spearhead in the world for carbon capture and storage. And, and, uh, Second, uh, I mean, and shortly behind Canada is United Arab Emirates, Saudi Arabia, and then the U.S. They're the top four. Well, you you were talking just now about all the the individuals that seem to be on on the on board on the project, including Greta Thunberg and uh, Sapura Berman and uh, Naomi Klein. Uh, but there's also Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, and, and they're all, uh, you know, at least silent on the issue of, of CCS. And can you explain the situation they're in that, that compels them to, to disregard the further fossil fuel extraction under, under CCS? Yes, um, I've coined a term called... Um, uh, donut communications and that's where the unalloyed truth is represented by the hole in the middle of the donut and the rest of the donut represents 
what is convenient to be communicated to support the narrative position or the uh, assigned narrative position that this particular public figure has arrived at through their networks and the influence of their networks and what's what they've been what messaging they've been provided through their various advisors and networks and those messages are shaped by the funders and the funders have a concession position so in the case of AOC she was given this slogan 100% renewable energy and if that was supposed to apply 100% to the US well then it was dropped very early in the piece you know what i mean she uh, was covered in um uh in for the first time in um Vogue magazine with this um trendy trendy starlet called um Bria Vignate or something and um that's where the phrase first appeared 100% renewable but within 6 months that commitment had been kind of phased out and relegated out so that it in reality had been relegated out but for a lot of the NGOs and various youth groups that were being highly promoted around the time leading up to um the uh Biden Sanders unity, unity task force it was still a, something they believed was a reality something that the green new deal was going to be able to deliver or something that Biden could be convinced to take to the election. And um, at the Biden-Sanders Unity Task Force, members of Data for Progress, which in, which is a kind of a, a electioneering think tank, um, which had recruited a 350.org member, um, Julian Brave Noisecat, they managed to convince members of the Sunrise Project and AOC to ha have concession positions on carbon capture and storage and advanced nuclear that um, Biden took to the election. So those concession positions are what allowed the Inflation Reduction Act to massively expand the 45Q tax credit, which various Democrats had or Biden various Democrats had contributed to the bipartisan efforts, efforts to develop since 2016. So now you're seeing three new CO2 pipelines being pushed through the Midwest, all delivering CO2 from biofuels and fossil fuel facilities to enhanced oil recovery projects. And the green groups, the climate campaigners aren't talking about it. I think it should be mentioned that this, the CCS uh, process, uh, some of which also involves uh, um, steaming methane reforming and uh, cracking, and it's it's set to bring about major fossil fuels uh, in industry boom as well, um, and the enhanced oil recovery kind of like fracking disguised as climate activism. I mean, just maybe describe briefly some of the other projects setting to, to really take off around the world. Okay, I'll start with uh, one that um, is incredibly significant in, um, in Europe. It's called the um, Northern Endurance Partnership. And the uh, key proponent is the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative. 
they are supplying storage to the proposed or the being developed um, uh, East Coast cluster, which is um, two industrial regions developed around uh, Middlesbrough and Hull. And um, those clusters will be um, hosting companies like Equinor and BP and Drax to use um, uh, biomass to produce um, blue hydrogen and uh, uh, fossil gas to produce blue hydrogen, various other projects. They're connected to, um, to storage in the North Sea through the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative. Now, the interesting thing about the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative is that they represent virtually all the big oil and gas companies and processing companies on the planet. And in 2019, on the night before Greta's big How Dare You speech in New York, where she was invited by the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, he sent his assistant to go and speak to the Oil and Gas Climate Initiative at a swanky hotel and told them that their plans, gave the thumbs up to their plans. It just happened that nobody officially knew what their plans were in the North Sea until an embargoed press release was put out that same day. So the press release embargo was lifted about an hour before Greta's big speech. The problem is, is that no one in the climate movement wants to acknowledge that speech happened, but everything Antonio Guterres has said since that speech about clean energy or climate plans is made into a lie in the context of that speech or address or message or whatever that is executive passed on. So I, I've been sharing it for the last four years to just kind of remind people that um, everything the UN Secretary General says is rhetorical in the, in the context of what he endorsed on that night, which is large-scale carbon capture and storage for fossil fuels ongoing. I, I have a, a statement from the Canadian Environment Movement and Climate Change, Stephen Guibola, saying on the last year's Earth Day, after announcing two major nature conversation projects, he said, quote, this plan is a roadmap for reducing pollution in a fair and affordable way, setting us on the path to reducing emissions by at least 40% below 2005 levels by 2030 as a milestone to net zero emissions by 2050. Um, should Canadians invest a lot of enthusiasm over such projects? Yeah, I'm I'm confused by what he's what um carbon capture savings he's um asserting there. It seems to be a conservation project, so that would fall under afforestation. Look, not cutting the forests down, as far as I can tell. If it's seems like it's a a, a proposal for CO two drawdown by doing conservation better and developing certain green zones. Uh, and I mean, 
in contrast to statements he made two weeks ago, which are all about carbon capture tech and supporting renewables. And in the context of, um, what is it, the Ring of Fire and other developments proposed for um, for um, uh, critical minerals capture and everything else I've previously spoken about, it seems like a bit of um, uh, dressing mm-hmm. and uh, uh, greenwashing, focusing on focusing on the boreal forests and certain conservation efforts with the Nature Conservancy, which, you know, I don't want to go into, but they're um they're a favorite of Hank Paulson and um they're basically Wall Street's conservation organization. You know what I mean? They're toxic. <laughs> so I don't know, it doesn't sound very good to me. And it yeah, and it's more look over here than um than being upfront about what Canada is really doing about net zero. Michael Swift, I, I want to thank you for coming on my program and, and sharing your research with our listeners. Oh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Michael Swift is an Australian activist and a member of the Wrong Kind of Green Critical Thinking Collective. You can read more by visiting the site wrongkindofgreen.org. You're listening to the Global Research News Hour, broadcasting from CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg and from partnering radio stations across Canada and the United States. Dr. Vandana Shiva is an Indian scholar, environmental activist, food sovereignty advocate, eco-feminist, and anti-globalization author. She was born in Dehradun to her father, a conservator of forests, and her mother, a farmer with a love of nature. As a young woman, she studied physics and then moved to Canada to continue with graduate degrees in the philosophy of physics as applied to the periodicity of light and quantum physics. In 1982, she founded the Research Foundation for Science, Technology and Ecology, which led to the creation of Navdanya in 1991, a national movement to protect the diversity and integrity of living resources, especially native seed, uh, the promotion of organic farming and fair trade. Based in Delhi, Shiva has written more than 20 books. She's often referred to as the Gandhi of grain for her activism associated with the anti-GMO movement. And she's appeared in numerous films. She she joins us now to talk about some of her recent writing on the, the subject of the unique threat posed by the 1% or the philanthrocapitalists. Vandana Shiva, it's uh, wonderful to talk, speak with you again. Thanks for joining us on the Global Research News Hour. Happy to join you. You, you opened your book, Philanthrocapitalism and the Erosion of Democracy, a global citizen's report on the corporate control of technology, health, and agriculture with talk about the land and uh, how indigenous communities worldwide have evolved the most ingenious farming systems over time. And then about a century ago, these traditions began to collapse due to the chemically intensive agricultural model, which originated under the uh, IG Farben companies, the the poison cartel, as you put it, that, that started making chemical weapons in World War I and World War II, and then 
in an attempt to keep making profits turned to use in agriculture. Uh, they, they saw a big opportunity in the green revolution to make money. Uh, this began a new area of conquest, uh, not, not just of land, but of the, the food on which we all feed. Talk about how this system transformed the quality of diets in the world, particularly the, the global south where the green revolution was practiced. Yeah, Michael, actually, before the industrialization of agriculture, including its green revolution phase, phase when it's in, imposed on the third world, is the privatization of land and the creation of private property. People think private property has always been around. In my country, land was never owned as private property. Land was a commons and allocations were done by the community for its use. Exactly like territories were you know, assigned to indigenous cultures. People knew which group has which land. For India, it's as recent as 1783 or 87, when Lord Corvallis wrote with one sentence that all the land of India belongs to England. All of the continent of Australia belonged to England. All of Canada belonged to England. All of the United States belonged to England. All of Africa started to belong to England. And, and the alienation of land is really the story of colonialism. And that's why the land back movement of indigenous people is so significant as decolonization and as our establishing our relationship with the earth in a rightful way. The next step of alienation is IG Farben and Standard Oil, as I've written in my book, Oneness versus One Percent. The German companies had the technology, the chemical technology, but the fossil fuels from which the chemical industry made its uh, fertilizers, pesticides, its chemicals to kill people, uh, that came from Standard Oil, came from Rockefeller. And Standard Oil, IG Farben had one company. And at that time, too, after having established a monopoly, Rockefeller realized that it, it had to create a philanthropic image. So they created the Rockefeller Foundation. And just here on my desk is Operation Paperclip of how the, the Nazi scientists were transported to do all this work in the United States. And it's not an accident that genetic engineering is then developed by Rockefeller on the basis of the molecular biology discipline, which they financed 100%. Um, and they're the ones who pushed the chemical farming on India. The Green Revolution was pushed, of course, by the US government, by the World Bank, but also by the Rockefeller Foundation and the Ford Foundation. Today, even though Rockefeller is very active still, they haven't, uh, you know, uh, receded from the scene. The Green Revolution for Africa, the Alliance for the Green Revolution in Africa, is a joint project of Rockefeller and Gates. Of course, since globalization, Gates has become super rich, as all the tech billionaires have. And in our, our, our both my book, Oneness Versus One Percent, as well as our collective book through the movements on philanthrocapitalism, they're really showing how it, it, there's not a single field that doesn't directly impact human freedom and human well-being, where Gates is not trying to take over right now. And he has become the biggest farmland owner of America. 
And he has already launched something called Gate Sagwan. Exactly when the COVID was bursting, he was dreaming of one agriculture under his control, the seeds under his control, the technology under his control, the food under his control, lab food, fake food. So if you want to see with everything that we knew was wrong with agriculture, if it's been given a fast forward, it's by the philanthrocapitalism of Gates. In 2000, they brought the golden rice to India. We showed how it was a very inferior source of vitamin A, and there was so much more diversity. Gates took it now to Philippines. I've just addressed the Philippines peasants a few week, uh, weeks back because they're fighting golden rice. We stopped the BT egg plant of Monsanto. We put a moratorium. Mr. Gates states it to Bangladesh. So everything that has been failed through democracy, Gates is lifting it as long as there's money and power to be made. So for anyone who cares about land, seed, agriculture, you must keep an eye on Bill Gates. Mm. Well, yeah, I mean, you talk about like the danger of, of Bill Gates and, and, and philanthrocapitalism. Um, I'm just, I mean, is this just a return of the green revolution uh, of the 60s, but but in different bottles? Or is there like, you say, like a, a, a unique angle that, that's uh, represented by Gates and the billionaires? Uh, you know, can you talk about how it's sort of up the ante, so to speak? Yeah. Well, you know, uh, at the time of the green revolution, the tools of destruction were chemical fertilizers. And and using conventional breeding to change the plant to suit the fertilizers. But if that's about the highest level of violence they could do. Now, when Mr. Gates is playing that role, they have tools not just of genetic engineering, which have already you know, been a total failure in terms of delivering on the promises, promises of weed control, promises of pest control, you know, I've worked years with dear Percy Smizer, and I remember him so fondly, the Canadian farmer, who was sued by Monsanto after Monsanto contaminated his fields with a round of ready canola. And I know there's a film out called Percy. And those who don't know of Percy's case, please watch that film. Um, the, the first generation GMOs have failed. Gates now, just like Rockefeller singularly created the discipline of molecular biology, of genetic reductionism, of, uh, of life, not as a complex self-organized system, but as a machine which they could control and own. Right now, the tools of gene editing have been totally financed by Mr. Gates. Both the scientists who have further developed the CRISPR technology, CRISPR-Cas9, which is gene editing, financed by Gates. He even financed their fight for patenting. And he's the one who's deregulating GMO regulation and patent law regulation to push gene-edited crops. Europe, there's a big fight going on. UK has just passed a precision breeding law which puts GMOs outside regulation. And the most important thing, as I've written, it's a chapter in the books of philanthrocapitalism on the seed issue. For the Green Revolution, all the seeds of the world were collected and put in these banks, gene banks, they call them, called CGIR systems, 
ERI, the Rice Research Institute, ICRASAT, the Dharaland Crop Institute, ICARDA, the Arizona Institute. As the privatization has grown, the public spending has come down. And if you look at all of the CJR centers and all the seeds they hold, the biggest contributor has become Mr. Gates, which means he holds this genetic wealth of the world. He holds the seeds of the world. He also controls the Swalbard seed bank. So he has control of the seed, the first link in the food chain, control over the technologies through which he would take the patents and have the monopolies, and the control over the land where you would grow food. And he's not stopping at that. He realizes if, he, if, if agriculture is left as agriculture, there will be decentralization and diversity. And monopoly creators hate decentralization and they hate diversity. So that's why his gates sag one. And he's working with Bayer and all of these companies. In fact, his gates sag one office is right next to Monsanto's office in St. Louis, Missouri. You know, that's where the center is, because it's a new partnership to forget about agriculture as a, a activity of producing your food. Agriculture will be uniform around the world, all based on GMOs, all based on glyphosate, producing raw material of amino acids and proteins as feedstock, just like we turn cows into factory objects fed by animal feed. In a similar way, they want to turn us into factory objects fed by lab-made food whose raw material comes from the farms on a very large scale. And that, to me, is the summary of this plant-based language that they've created. It's really about fake food. And if you look at who's doing what, Impossible Burger, Mr. Gates. Fake breast milk, Mr. Gates. You know, touch any crazy idea of how we should not be living on this planet. Mr. Gates's money is there for the craziness to become law. Oh, boy. I mean, they say that uh, the Bill Gates, uh, his approach to, to Microsoft was, uh, well, not so much about building a better mousetrap and having the world beat a path to your door so much as building a lousy mousetrap and building gates to everybody else's door. Um, you know, that's the whole, I mean, he's been appeared in court uh, facing uh, you know charges of antitrust, basically undermining competition and, and having, you know, unjustified monopolies in place. But, you know, flash forward to the present now, he's the number one, as you said, the number one holder of land in uh, North America. What kind of a game is he now playing with owning all this land? How, how will it affect the food on my plate in the, in the not too distant future? Yeah, the, the first is the billionaires want our land and they want our food because these are two things without which humanity can't live. So at the time when he's grabbing the land, he's telling the farmers to leave the land. He's trying to make it look like farming is not for the future. The slogan of his minions, I call them his minions, people he, he gives parrot talk to. Um, farming without farmers, food without farms. That's the dystopia. Farming without farmers, that means with more chemicals, more machines, and food without farms, no food straight from the farms, no wheat that you can bake your bread with. No, just amino acids and proteins going as feedstock for bacteria in the lab. Cellular agriculture. Um, what is he wanting? Control. 
as Pilsinger said, when I did my book on the violence of the Green Revolution, I looked at all the literature and Kissinger's statement that if, if you control arms, you control governments. When you control food, you control people. And that's why I say when you control seed, you control the planet. Uh, that's what his dystopia is, total control. Hmm. And in the same way, he had not created the basic software. It was mathematics professors in a college in Vermont, which he then claims he invented. His piracy of that time and monopolies and antitrust, exactly the same thing he's doing with seed. He's trying to convert our food into software. He's trying to convert life into software. And that's why it's not an accident that wherever life is, he's trying to push software systems, both as a monopoly system of patents, as well as a monopoly system of surveillance and extraction of it. Well, that, that brings to mind uh, something called uh, impossible food, which is like a, a lab-made nourishment, I guess. That's, uh, I guess it's made to look like uh, 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 meat and, and taste sort of like meat, but without, I guess, the side effects of, of meat or, or animal deaths. I mean, uh, I worse side effects, worse side effects. Anyone who thinks that a GMO soya burger does not have side effects, is not following what an industrial GMO agriculture does. GMO, the glyphosate sprayed Roundup Ready soya, which is most of the soya grown in the world, is responsible for hundreds of thousands of cancer deaths of people. Mm -hmm. And this impossible burger has much higher residues of glyphosate than anyone allows. Uh, it has pushed the monarch butterfly to extinction. It's designed to kill everything green. Anyone who supports an impossible burger and plant-based pretend meat as being non-violent doesn't seek the violence to the butterflies, to the bees, to the human beings, and most importantly, to the plant life. You know, first humans were arrogant and drew a, plant, a line between themselves and other animals and we are superior torture them in the factory farms. But who gives you the right to say the plants are not sentient? Understand the literature to see that plants are not to be based and turned into meat. Plants are sentient beings and they need as much respect as the animals do. And any system that turns plants into raw material is a violation of the plants. Any system that destroys the biodiversity of plants is a violation of the plants. So some very basic unscientific statements are being made and unscientific claims. So Pat, for, there are 14 patents associated with the impossible burger. And from what I gather, the European patent has just been withdrawn. So um, sadly, there are a lot of people who don't know farming, who don't know anything about food, who, who lap up Mr. Gates's propaganda and in a way hand over their brains to Mr. Gates. This is the time to know what food is, to know what healthy food is, to know what plants are like and plant diversity is like, to understand the symbiotic relationship between plants and animals. Because it's only the symbiotic relationship between plants and animals that will give us a nonviolent system. A system that says kill all the plants and kill all the animals, except the soya bean that we want with Roundup resistance. 
Now, people are not thinking their way through. They are not thinking. Talk a bit about uh, the, on, on the climate change front, uh, Bill Gates uh, and the philanthropic capitalists, but uh, particularly Bill Gates was active in, in prescribing solutions to climate change. Bill Gates came up with the Breakthrough Energy, which is uh, you know uh, an umbrella of organizations dedicated to sustainable energy and high-tech projects. Uh, President Obama complimented it with mission innovation. Uh, and and, uh, and his approach was being adopted by the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change and, and countries all over the world. I mean, what concerns do you have with his approach to, uh, to climate change as currently modeled? Yeah. First, it's unscientific. Yeah. The more they talk of science, the less science they do. It's unscientific because to blame the cow for having forked stomachs for the climate problem is just bad science. It's the bad diet that's giving us the methane. The biogenetic methane just goes right back into the cycle. In 10 years, it's gone and turned into carbon dioxide and back into the system. Uh, Impossible Burger is one of his climate solutions. Not a climate solution. Spraying Roundup everywhere to kill the plants that give you the photosynthesis that solves the climate problem is not a climate solution. Geoengineering, changing the climate, with changing the weather with pollution is not a climate solution. Uh, his breakthrough energy supports biomilk. You know, I'm a mother, I had a baby, and I did breastfeeding. Now, the distance between my baby and me is zero miles. Yeah? I don't have any emissions while I'm feeding my baby. And he has lab, fake lab milk called biomilk patented as a solution to climate change. Shipping the synthetic meat all over the world will add to climate emissions. We already know with the Nestle's and all the baby food, how much sickness and death of babies took place. No one has done the safety test on the synthetic lab milk as a pretend breast milk. Uh, another reason he's buying up land is because that's where all the audits they're creating for carbon offsets, which is they, they are dreaming that will be the new economy. Of, we will, as he says clearly in his book, Climate Catastrophe, it's not net zero doesn't mean we stop polluting. Net zero just means we have to find the sinks and the offsets. And I've repeatedly said in debates when people promote net zero, I said, we are not your sinks. You polluted us enough. You've dumped enough on us. But our land is our mother. And our land is not there for your pollution. Our land is there for sustaining life on Earth. Mm. You know, I, I think that there's a the sense that, well, I mean, the early colonizers of America, I mean, yes, they, they plundered and they were after gold and land and uh, other ways of making money. But at the same time, they, they, they also seem to have perpetuated this idea that they were actually going to try to to help the people you know bring them civilization and and this such stuff uh and i'm wondering if like with bill gates if he isn't uh i mean if if he actually believes that he's going to achieve uh, good for people because he wants to 
you know, make money and, and have all these uh, accomplishments met. But I think he, he probably wants to, at the same time, ease his conscience and saying that, well, it's a win-win for, for us. I mean, is, is that your take or is he just a, a nasty? Well, uh, as I've written in my book, Oneness was 1%, you know, he is on a civilizing mission. He does think we are all primitive. He does think he is out to deliver us. He has so little knowledge of how cultures live how human beings live, how life on this earth lives. He has no knowledge. He just knows he made money out of stealing other people's software. And he knows he, how he, he, to make money. And he now, in the form of philanthrocapitalist, has convinced himself, just like the missionaries who massacred the indigenous people and wiped out 90% of the indigenous people of the Americas. They did it in the name of civilizing mission. Gates is doing exactly the same. He's on a civilizing mission to wipe us out while he pretends he's civilizing us. Hmm. It's no different. It's no different. It's just the instruments are more violent now. Yeah, and he doesn't see the, the like like with the the, uh, the green revolution. He doesn't see <laughs> too much. He doesn't see too much. You know, we talk to ordinary people. You watch their eyes. You see the world that's in their eyes. Yeah. Gates has a limited vocabulary of about 20 words. He cannot go beyond it. But does he even go through the mechanism of, of going, sending people out to the different communities and, and having a dialogue and saying, OK, these are your problems. And then they come back and here's your. Not, not a dialogue, a mission. Go and do this to the people. He already knows what to do. Hmm. So what, what is the approach you're taking in terms of uh, calling for earth democracy. How, how can we not only fight the- Very simple. Fight the philanthrop-capitalists. Well, you know, uh, yeah. Uh, but also rebuild the heritage of past yeah. indigenous agri ag agriculturists. Yeah. So, you know, I, I wrote our democracy after we managed to stop the WTO in Seattle. And they were talking about a new world order. They were talking about a global constitution, which will be about making money, corporate rule, profits first. And for me, a democracy means first, the recognition that we are part of the earth. We are not separate. Second, we are not superior to other species. And no culture is superior to other cultures and no race is superior to other races. The democracy of the earth is a democracy of diversity, but not inequality, no hierarchies. How do we fight philanthrocapitalism with this? By realizing that money isn't the currency of life. And having accumulated billions doesn't mean that a billionaire has unequal rights. At the end of the day, we, the tree, the salmon in the river, we all have rights to be here on this planet, to be sustained by the planet and to sustain it. A democracy means we have to get rid of all the hierarchies, including the hierarchy between the billionaires, the oneness, and the rest of us. And we get that power to fight these divisions by turning to the earth to know how life works. And that's where the indigenous cultures and nature herself becomes our teacher for the next step of liberation. Humanity's liberation comes from the non-human sphere and from those who were declared primitive by the curse of civilizing missions.
Earth Day is an annual day in which citizens around the world uh, mobilize to protect the planet for, for future generations, although some complain about major greenwashing of major corporations. Um, so, so when people want to embrace the Earth this coming Earth Day, what do you suggest they, where, where do you suggest they put their efforts? The first thing they should say, wherever they are, that Mother Earth is not for sale because the philanthro-capitalists want to own the earth. The second thing is the basic currency of life is food and they want our food. So go plant something in your windowsill, in your back garden, find a farmer whom you can relate to, create a food community. Third, this earth day, just remember we are part of the earth. We are not her masters. And those who pretend to be masters are not her masters either. Vandana Shiva, it's been great talking to you again and, and, and hearing your um, wisdom and uh, knowledge. Thank you so much for being a, a part of this very special uh, Thank you. conversation. You've been speaking Happy Earth Day to everyone. <laughs> Same here. Uh, Vandana Shiva is an Indian scholar, environmental activist, food sovereignty advocate, uh, economist, and glo anti-globalization author. And uh, she's uh, also uh, she's speaking to us from uh, Delhi. So that was our look at Earth Day. We certainly don't want listeners to turn their noses up at Earth Day and protecting the environment. Just keep your eyes and mind open to the various greenwashing messages out there. You can visit earthday.org for more information. And in Canada, there is the handy site earthday.ca to get a breakdown of things happening across the country. Thank you for listening. Next week, we plan on investigating the Silicon Valley bank failure last month, why it happened and what it may mean for the future of the banking system and for each member of the public. Join us again in seven days. Listening to the Global Research News Hour, a program funded by the Center for Research on Globalization and produced in collaboration with campus community radio station CKUW 95.9 FM in Winnipeg on the traditional lands of the Anishinaabe, Ininu, Ojikri, Dene, and Dakota, the birthplace of the Metis Nation and the heart of the Metis Nation homeland. The show airs on partner radio stations across Canada and the United States and is available for streaming or download at the site globalresearch.ca. To leave feedback on this program, please email globalresearchnewshour at gmail.com. I've been your host, Michael Welch. Thanks once again for joining us. Music.